0: How can you be part of a religious community that straight up sides Sometimes signs it feels like the church is trying to on. The church seems to be stuck that in their ways exists. when the rest of the world so is keep trying to give answers would but they don't even know the questions. I would never be part of a church that's not welcoming. It. It. The church is the most local political true. voice against In memory. Some churches still don't lead I worship with the actual people. Do you understand straight kid goes that is what 230 is plenty long The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the world How is It seems like so much of the church's anti-critical thinking, homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. This is our second episode on the church and Donald Trump, because like I said in the first one... Sometimes somebody comes into a session for therapy, brings up an issue, and immediately the therapist knows this is going to be a long and complex thing to try to disentangle. Because this is connected to that, which is connected to that over there, which means we have to go deeper here. So I knew once I prepared, it would take multiple episodes to even address some of the big picture things of why the church seems to have this great allegiance to, devotion to, or some would argue, obsession with Donald Trump. So this episode is about Christian leaders smiling at tables they should be flipping over. So this should be a fun one. Let's get into it. Let's begin with some things I observe about Christian leaders and their relationship with Trump and, and the fact that they grieve me, right? There's things I observe about Christian leaders' relationship with the White House and Donald Trump right now that deeply grieve me. Then we'll talk about the early church in the Roman Empire. Then I will return to these things and explain why they grieve me so much and why they are so problematic. So before we get into the reason why, let's just, I'm going to share with you some observations, some things I've seen that grieve me over this entire administration. One, I see Franklin Graham and Eric Metaxas having a conversation together and essentially saying that to resist Donald Trump is demonic or comes out of some dark place spiritually. So these are two of the most prominent Christian leaders, two of the most prominent fundamentalist leaders in the United States, saying that to resist Donald Trump's presidency is basically demonic, okay? Now, another time I see Franklin Graham claiming that, and I quote, this president has done more for this country than any president in my lifetime. And he goes on to say they're going to try to impeach him because he's successful. So again, one of the most prominent Christian leaders argues that Trump has done more in the, for, for this country in the past 75 years than any other president before this. Right? Another thing I see is, I see Sarah Huckabee, the former White House press secretary, saying confidently that God wanted Donald Trump to be president. Think about the power that she has of how many briefings, of how many times she's addressed our nation on behalf of the president. And for her to say publicly and confidently that God wanted, that she knows, that she's certain, that she's confident that God wanted Donald Trump to be president. Think about what that means and what that means communicates to people, right? Another time I see Eric Metaxas defending Donald Trump by comparing his impulsive cruelty and demeaning language to others, to Jesus's anger in turning tables over in the temple. He's drawn, this is, this guy has so much influence in the United States of America. And Metaxas defends Trump by drawing a comparison between his childish, insecure, vitriolic attacks on the character of individuals to Jesus challenging and confronting an entire exploitative and corrupt economic system that was crushing the lives of the poor and the most vulnerable. The irony of this will be made clear a little bit later. I really have to resist the temptation to jump to the why of why these things grieve me so deeply. We're just talking about the what right now, right? Here's another thing. I see pastors smiling around a table gathered around Trump, like he's their King bragging about how much access they have to Trump. And some of the most, and I see some of the most famous worship leaders with huge smiles singing songs of worship in the White House and talking about how great the administration is and how exciting it is for them to be able to pray for the president. <sighs> this is where, if this was visual, I would put up a meme of Jesus palming his face right now. It's called, the just Google it, Jesus Face Palm, if you want to see how I'm feeling in this moment. So those are just just a few observations that symbolically show this culture of Christian leaders who love, support, believe in, and strengthen Donald Trump. There's so much more that's been said. There's so many more public things that have happened. I'm just giving you that small sample, which then symbolically represents this whole culture of Christian leaders and what appears to be their unflinching support and love for Donald Trump. Not just love for him as a person, but love for what he does. Which might lead some people to ask this question. Well, then what's the problem? Why would any of this be a betrayal of the way of Jesus? What are the issues here? What you're saying is you have Christian leaders in the White House praying and singing songs And, you know, quote unquote, having an influence over the political process, Kevin, what would be the problem? What are the issues here? Well, I'm glad that you all hypothetically asked that in my imagination. So now, now is when we go back to the beginning of the fourth century and we can look at a pivotal moment between the church and the Roman Empire and then we will see when we return how much of that moment is connected to this moment. And hopefully you will see why so much of this grieves me and I find so deeply troubling and problematic. Now, this is a, the famous story of what some people call the, Const, the Constantinian Compromise. It created a Constantinian imagination. This was the moment when the church first got interwoven with the empire. But first, before I tell you this specific story, here's something you have to understand. For the first 300-ish years of the church, she existed as a marginal, subversive, fringe, counter-witness to the Roman Empire in the, in the, in the ancient Near East and in the Mediterranean. Right the church was not yet woven into the power structures the church was a marginal small but growing fringe group of people who had an entirely different way of life than the empire right the church challenged the violence of the empire with the nonviolence of jesus the church challenged the empire and how dehumanizing their treatment of the most vulnerable were women Children, slaves, etc. The church challenged the claim of the empire that their Caesar, their emperor, their king was divine, which is what they believed. The church refused to bow down to the empire like everybody else did. The church, just the just the church saying Jesus is Lord was an absolute challenge to critique of and created a confrontation with the empire because their slogan was Caesar is Lord. And anybody who claimed otherwise would be tortured or killed and put on display as an example. So when the early church said Jesus is Lord, that also was a social and political statement that said, we do not support the empire. We are challenging the empire because the true King Jesus has inaugurated a new kingdom and in this kingdom things are done differently. Like even in Acts 17:7 7, there's this whole uproar but the issue that describes Acts 17:7 7 says they are all referring to these early Christians. They're all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Right? They're not being arrested or killed or tortured because they believe in some new form of spirituality. They said the early church was defying Caesar by claiming there was another king. They saw that fringe movement as a social and political sort of subversive challenge to the empire That's why they were being arrested. You don't get arrested because you have some new weird form of spirituality. In our day, you get a Netflix show. (laughs) You can have a massive following if it's just some weird little fringe spiritual cult. But no, this community was challenging the entire way of the empire. Now, in 312, the Roman Emperor Constantine attempted to consolidate his power in a civil war with another Roman emperor. So he... Goes in this. It's called the Battle of the Molivian Bridge. Constantine's armies prevailed over the Roman Emperor Maxentius. So what happened is Constantine wins this battle. He becomes more powerful, right? But Constantine claimed that he had a vision of a cross in the sky, and he heard a voice saying, "By this, you will conquer." right? So he gets this vision of a cross, and then he says, by this you will conquer. That might not be for, for verbatim. And then he wins the battle. A year later, he signs the Edict of Milan, which proclaimed religious tolerance throughout the Roman Empire. A little while later, Christianity became the official religion of the empire. Now, why does any of this matter? The Roman Empire is using the cross as a symbol of to kill other people, even though the cross was a symbol that represented Jesus being killed by the state. That's a strange reversal. So basically the empire gets more powerful. And what they do is they allow Christianity to become the official religion of the empire. They bring the religion into their political system and they start to interweave it. You could say instead of the church challenging the empire or challenging the quote-unquote palace, now the palace or the empire gives the church a bedroom in the empire and makes it a part of its whole project. Here's why historians, theologians, people see this as one of the most defining moments of the church of all time. In that moment, the church went from being a minority, countercultural, counter imperial, and subversive community who was resisting power and empire to aligning itself with power, to partnering with the empire, and to being co opted by the political powers. Jesus was crucified by that empire, and now the church was cozying up to the empire. Jesus was offering an alternative to empire, and now the church was aligning itself with empire. The first two to three hundred years of the church, they were resisting the empire, challenging the empire, being persecuted and even killed by the empire. And now after Constantine, they somehow started to fit right in with the empire. See, for Jesus, the cross was an instrument of the empire that was used to kill him. And now the emperor was using the name of Jesus to justify killing others in the same way they killed him. Now, Christians in the Roman Empire were sitting down at the very tables that Jesus was flipping over. Do you see that massive reversal? They're whining, dining, they're enjoying, they're parting, they're being welcomed. They're sitting down at the very tables that Jesus was flipping over. Because those tables, all of the goods on those tables is built on the backs of the most vulnerable. Through the oppression and the marginalization of the most vulnerable people in the empire. And let's just say the empire had more of a negative influence on Christianity than Christianity had a positive influence on the empire. The way of Jesus went from loving your enemies, working for peace, and living in solidarity with the oppressed and challenging political power to somehow supporting killing your enemies, being comfortable with war, colonizing and oppressing the marginalized, and getting in bed with political power. Jesus's goal was never an earthly empire rooted in human power. Jesus's goal was never some massive, earthly, political, violent empire that was rooted in human power. It was always an entirely different kingdom. So now let's fast forward to now and back to the question of why all of those things I brought up grieve me and why I see them as an issue and an absolute betrayal of the way of Jesus and how they are relating to Trump and relating to power. Because what I see now with all of these Christian leaders and their connection with Trump and their relationship with to power looks like, feels like, and seems a lot like that moment where the early church betrayed the wadi- the radical, the radical who's that? Is Elmer even Elmer Fudd the radical way of Jesus, where the early church betrayed the radical way of Jesus in order to get closer to power and empire? So when two prominent Christian leaders equate Resisting Donald Trump with resisting God. What I see are people linking the life of Trump and the life of Christ in an irresponsible and ridiculous way. When a Christian leader claiming that Trump has done more for this country than anyone else in the past 70 years what I see is a willed ignorance and a skewed view of the president that comes from being drunk with the power that you feel because of how close you are to the president. And when a former White House press secretary claims that God wanted Donald Trump to be president, what I see is a spiritually reckless and socially dangerous comment that has the potential to cause so much damage to the public witness of the church. And when a prominent leader compares Trump's childish cruelty towards individuals to the anger of Jesus at a socially oppressive system that was exploiting and crushing the poor, I see a person completely de-radicalizing and stripping Jesus of his transformative power in order to uphold his own political agenda. And when there is a massive group photo of Christian leaders all standing around the table, overly excited to take a picture or touch the arm of Trump, I see spiritual leaders who are smiling at tables Jesus was flipping over. I see spiritual leaders who are smiling at tables that Jesus was flipping over in his own time. And back to the worship leaders in the White House as well. Because people can ask the question, what would be the problem of these people singing worship songs in the White House? And what's interesting is all these videos that surface on Instagram is when you pay attention, when I see these worship leaders and Christians in the White House singing worship songs, the refrain you hear is they're singing, I just want you, I just want you, I just want you, I- implying what they're saying is, I just want you, meaning Jesus, right? That's their worship song, Jesus, I just want you. <clears throat> and I add, when I see that, I ask myself, right, but do you want what Jesus wants? I just want Jesus, right? But do you want what Jesus wants? does this administration want what Jesus wants? Does Trump want what Jesus wants? Do you want justice? Do you want an end to the unjust systems that are still leveraged against and killing killing black and brown people? Do you want an end to any dehumanizing treatment of immigrants and children who are trying to come here for a better life? Because to see songs about wanting Jesus sung in the middle of the White House. Without those same people speaking up for the things Jesus wants means nothing in the kingdom of God. Singing, all I want is Jesus, while not challenging these power structures and holding them accountable for all of the ways they're wanting things that are so clearly antithetical to and completely opposed to the things Jesus wants When you're singing about those things, it means nothing if you don't want what Jesus wants, and if you don't stand up for it, and if you don't speak truth to the power system that you are sitting down with that is working against those very things. And I'm not alone in saying that. And matter of fact, I would say to sing those songs without demanding the change that actually works towards the things Jesus wants is absolutely to make a mockery of the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God. The prophet Amos speaking to his people during a time where they were losing their way and they were cozying up to power and they were forgetting who they were and they were betraying the way of God. Amos 521 through 24 says this. This is the Bible. This is not me. This is in the Bible. Amos 521. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. This is the message version. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness rivers of it. That's what I want, and that's all I want. Do you think the prophet Amos might have something to say to many of the religious leaders who are bearing the name of Jesus today? Because here's the thing. You can say you're all about Jesus and be about nothing that Jesus was actually about. You can say you're all about Jesus and not actually be about or for or in tune with the things Jesus was actually about. You can betray the way of Jesus in the name of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. You can betray the way of Jesus in the name of Jesus. And that is what grieves me about all those examples I gave, which represent an entire culture that uncritically supports Donald Trump and this administration right now. Because what I see are people who are supporting someone in the name of Jesus, who for the past four years has been creating a world that looks nothing like the world that Jesus dreamed of. So if the church is in therapy, she needs to let go of her addiction to power. She needs to wake up to all of the ways she has forgotten, mutated, and betrayed the way of Jesus in the name of Jesus. She needs to realize that her support of someone who is so obviously opposed to the person and vision of Jesus, even in the name of Jesus, is completely ruining what little credibility that she has in the public eye of so so many, and what little integrity she has left in the eyes of so many Christian leaders who are still giving their lives to be faithful to the way of Jesus today. We need leadership that is not fighting for religious supremacy and for us to align ourselves with the power of this world. We need Jesus, Christ-shaped leadership right now that aligns ourselves with that counter-cultural, counter-imperial, subversive, humble, enemy-loving, life-giving, pouring ourselves out for others, starting with the most vulnerable and the most marginalized. We need that kind of a Christ-shaped leadership in order for the church to be more faithful to her calling as we move into the future together.